Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Lots of familiar faces and some new ones, which is great. Um, we're actually going to do something a little bit different tonight. Probably, I don't know if you've ever done this in church before. You may have done it in school. But we're going to play a game to start. So if you have a smartphone, pull it out. If you don't, that'll be okay because you're going to get to mock the people who are playing the game uh, as we go. So uh, you, what you need to do is you can go to either... Uh, by the way, if you're on the church's Wi-Fi, if you happen to be on that, you want to get off because this morning it overloaded the Wi-Fi and people couldn't like answer quickly enough. Um, and so if you're on the church's Wi-Fi, get on your LTE or whatever, 4G or 2G network, whatever you have. Um, so you want to go to kahoot.it if you want to play the web version, or you can download the app. You can download the Kahoot app if you want to do it that way. Um, and I'll give you a minute to do that. And while you're doing that, um, I will remind you of a couple of things. One, we're in the series. And by the way, when you get in, we'll see that you're in because you, your name, you'll enter a name. And we can see that Chrissy's already in and Sabrina's already in. Um, and so uh, this, we've been in a series called Signposts in the Mist, which is looking at the Old Testament. And we're looking at specific things in the Old Testament. Uh, and kind of what we've done is said, how are those things completed in Christ? And so ensuring that we always look at the completed work of Christ and look at the Old Testament in light of that. And um, a couple of moments that we had where Aaron, who is a professor from Southeastern, came up and he shared with us, and we looked at some difficult passages in the Old Testament and how they're better understood when you can understand them in the context of how Christ responded to those things. Um, and then Ryan, last week, if you were here, we actually started on the roof together and we actually physically walked through what the temple was like and the different rooms of the temple. And for example, looking at the Holy of Holies and how in the days of the Israelites in the Old Testament, only the, the priests could enter the Holy of Holies but when Christ died on the cross, the veil in the Holy of Holies was literally ripped in two and giving all of us who have a relationship with Christ access to God himself. And so uh, we looked at how Christ uh, really completed those works that we see in the Old Testament. So if you are familiar with the church calendar, not our church's calendar, but the Big C Church, does anybody know what this Sunday is in the church calendar? It's right before Advent starts, the last Sunday before Advent. Kyle's thinking about it. He's trying to come up with it. It's actually called Christ the King Sunday. And uh, it's actually where um, in the church calendar they reflect on that. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at the kings of the Old Testament. And we're going to uh, look at how some, some of the kings of the Old Testament, the work that they did, how that actually points us to Christ and how he completed that work. Uh, but there's lots of kings. I don't know if you guys know this, but there are a ton of kings we cannot cover them all. And so what I've done for you as a service to you is I have written a Kahoot quiz that has 10 essential facts. If you know these 10 essential facts about kings of the Old Testament, then you're set. Okay, you don't need to study the Bible anymore. You're going to be set if you know these 10 essential facts about kings of the Old Testament. You guys ready to roll? Okay, I'm, the first question, by the way, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to kind of get the hang of it a little bit. Because the answers are on screen, and then on your phone, you're just usually hitting some buttons, and so it's going to take you a second to get oriented. So the first question will have 20 seconds, 
But then after that, we're going to reduce it down to 10. So the first question, you have a little bit more time to kind of get oriented. And, and it's kind of a gimme. So if you miss the first question, shame on you. Okay, not really. I don't believe in shame, but um, here we go. So uh, are you guys ready? Okay, here we go. Kings of the Old Testament. What king, as a boy, slew Goliath? Okay, was it John? Maybe it was David? Harris? Maybe Samson? Which of those kings? Okay, so everybody who answered, 39 people got it right. Excellent. Congratulate yourselves. Everybody got David. And after each question, we get to see the leaderboard because speed matters. So Jonah actually got the right answer the quickest. So Jonah's in the lead, so speed matters. All right, let's go to the next one. Who was the first king of Israel? So Israel was a united kingdom. Who was the first king? David, Saul, Solomon, Herod. Which one was the first king of Israel? All right, it was Saul. Okay, quite a few good right answers, but we, we did have a few wrong answers. Okay, so that's okay. That's all right. You got time to make it up. Nate has vaulted into the lead. Congratulations, Nate. Um, now, now, the kingdom was separated. And now when it was separated, the first king of Judah, who was the first king of that separated kingdom of Judah? A little tougher. You got to really be sharpened up on your Bible history. Uh-oh, we only had seven get Rehoboam. Okay, so you got to sharpen up your Old Testament history a little bit. Um, and so now Becky, Becky jumps into the front. I see you, Becky. Yeah, that's right. A little fist pump from Becky. That's it. Um, okay, here we go. Um, question four, which king was made to eat grass like an ox? He literally was on all four eating grass like an ox. You should guess if you don't know. Guess Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, we got a lot of good answers. 26, right. Okay, who's in the lead now? Who's in the lead? Becky's still in the lead. Yep, yep. Becky's feeling good right now. Okay, ER is the highest climber. Which king prayed for deliverance? resulting in the angel of the Lord slaying 185,000 Assyrians. A little tougher now. We're getting harder as we go. Really showing if you could dig deep into the Old Testament. Wow, Hezekiah, 22 people. Nice work. Becky's still in the lead. Can anybody catch Becky? And Anne is now the highest climber. Congratulations, honey. You're doing great. That's my wife. Um, which king died after seeing the handwriting on the wall? So a king saw handwriting on the wall and then died right afterwards. Which king? There it is, Nebuchadnezzar. A little harder to get that one, right? Right? A little harder. Sorry about that. But Becky's still up there. Um, getting harder. We're digging deeper. These are essential facts that you have to know about the Old Testament. Okay, here we go. Who was Saul's wife? All right, we established that Saul was the first king. Who was his wife? Pretty famous first lady, basically, right? First lady. I got to admit to you, I tried to trick you on that one. I knew most of you would shut Jezebel. It's actually Ahinoam, uh, the famous lady, first lady. Becky's still up there in the lead, a little harder, getting harder. Digging deeper, which overweight king of Moab was killed when a sword was thrust into his belly? Essential facts of the Old Testament kings. You have to know this if you want to know your scripture, right? Because you got to know who's had a sword thrust into his belly. Eglon, getting harder. Who's up there? Is it still Becky? Becky's hanging on by a thread. She's killing it. 
She's killing it. Okay, here we go. We got two more left to catch her. Which king had a wife named Bernice? Again, really important essential facts about kings of the Old Testament. Which king had a wife named Bernice? Agrippa. Agrippa, right? Becky's still in the lead. <laughs> Becky's still up there in the lead. Okay, now here's the deal. You got it. This is your last chance to catch. You got to answer quick. Which king of Judah is recorded as building a pool? Which king of Judah built a pool? True fact of the Old Testament. Hezekiah, who comes out on top. Becky, Becky brings it home. Nice work. There'll be a fabulous prize for you later of some kind, I'm sure. Um, uh, how, how do you feel like you know the Old Testament much better now? You feel like you're kind of familiar with the kings? Uh, they're, doing, they're doing good. Um, so let's talk, about, let's talk about kings for a little bit. So what happened is uh, when Israel was a young nation, they actually did not have a king. Um, there, were, there were priests in place. There were prophets that would come. But they didn't judges that were there, but they didn't have a they didn't have a king, and they but but the people of Israel saw the surrounding communities that had kings, and in in Deuteronomy 17 is when we first get this idea, and we're going to see what God's anticipating the Israelites are going to ask for, and God's response to that. So He says in Deuteronomy 17, God knows they're going to ask. He says, "Look, when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you." And have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you will say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. So God, uh, because he's God, he knew this was coming, right? So he knew they were going to ask. And this is what he says the king should be like. Be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne for his kingdom, he is to make for himself on a scroll, a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It's to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So there's a few things that we see that God's saying should be true of the king, right? Sometimes maybe different than we think of kings today. So he's not supposed to acquire a bunch of gold and silver for himself. He's not supposed to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He's not supposed to take a bunch of wives and try to just accumulate power and money. And so that was, the king was really there more to serve. That's actually the picture you get painted. And the reason God's talking about this is he knows, he knows what's going to come. He knows that as, when humans get that kind of power, we'll talk about this in a second, it's really hard to stay in that place of servanthood. Um, so it comes to pass in 1 Samuel 8, as, he, as we expected, 1 Samuel 8, uh, because God's always right. Uh, and what happens, but they say to God, or actually as they're talking to Samuel, give us a king to lead us. Let me give you a little bit of context here. So Samuel um, was actually leading the people this time. He wasn't a king, uh, but as he was leading the people, his sons fell away. They weren't actually um, staying true to God. 
They were very evil, all of his sons. And so the people are anticipating, we're not getting another leader out of Samuel's line. So this is the time when we actually want a king. We want a king to lead us. So that's the context of this. And uh, it displeased Samuel, and he says to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not that they've rejected, you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So here we see God knowing that in Deuteronomy, I gave you really clear instructions about what a king should be like, but he knows the people. He knows why they're asking. They're not asking out of the right kind of heart. And he knows uh, what happens when someone becomes a king. So as we start to look at kings, so this kind of introduction of how we got to the place where Israel even had kings. And so as we start to look at that, um, there's some places that we can actually start to draw from Old Testament stories and learn from them. So we're going to look at a couple of ways that we do that as we read the Old Testament. So the first one we're going to look at is, is Saul. And so Saul was the first king. So this was the first one who was appointed. And I want you to remember all the things that God said in Deuteronomy that should be true and the picture that he painted of what a king should be like. Uh, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel 10, 23, and 24. So they ran and brought him out. That's Saul. So they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. So what's the thing that you see repeated there? You see repeated that he was a head taller than everyone else and that he stood out among all the people. So he was a very physically large guy. He was actually kind of probably physically impressive as he stood among the people. Um, so one of the ways when we read these Old Testament stories that God works in our life, I'll share a personal story on this one in particular. Um, so not that many years ago, I was actually ended up sitting in a room with a guy by the name of Joel Hunter. So some of you may know Joel, he's a pastor at Northland Church, one of the lar largest churches in Orlando and even actually in the United States. And um, he was uh, friends with uh, President Obama. They would actually um, talk on the phone from time to time. And so Joel was someone I really looked up to and I had met him another time, but he didn't remember me. It was like a quick meeting. And so now I find myself in a room with Joel Hunter and it's the two of us just sitting there talking. And over the course of time, I began to tell him stories or things about myself that I thought would impress Joel, that I thought he would go, man, this guy's awesome because of, of the things he's done or what he's accomplished. And, and so that's why I was telling the stories. I wasn't honestly conscious to think I wanted to do that, but that's what I was doing. And as we stood up to leave, I don't know if you guys have ever been next to Joel Hunter. He actually hit me about right here. And he's, I was a full head taller than him, and God brought this passage to my mind. And he said, Paul, do you want to be known like Saul for your physical appearance or for like whatever you accomplish in life and for the things you've done? Or do you more like David, the next king, who was known as a man after God's own heart? And so when we read the Old Testament, that's a great example of how God can use these stories to really convict us or to teach us something about ourselves as we learn about their lives. It's important, but we can't stop there because if we stop there, we're guilty of something that's called moralism. What we're doing is we're using the Bible to just help us make us better people. And that's really not the story arc that's most important in the Bible. The Bible's not written just to help make us better people. The Bible's written as a series of stories that actually is intended to point us to Christ 
and the work that he accomplished. And so as we talk about this thread of kings, it's important to recognize that the kings of the Old Testament, not only they have stories about themselves, but they are pointing us forward toward Christ as our king. And so let's look at David because he's a great illustration of what we're talking about. Because David wasn't a perfect man. As a matter of fact, David, uh, if you know his story, uh, in addition to all of you getting it correct that he slew Goliath as a young boy, which was awesome. Congratulations to all of you. Um, he also, uh, he actually committed murder. Uh, he committed adultery. He did a lot of things that we would consider to be pretty horrific things. And in those cases, certainly wasn't acting in a manner that was pleasing to God. But if you read the Psalms, you start to get a really clear narrative of the type of person that David was because when he realized that he was wrong, he was repentant. He was a man who was humble of heart and he recognized when he had done wrong. And it was that heart posture that enabled God to do something with him that God didn't do with other kings and that was he let King David actually perform the duties of a priest. And I'm not gonna turn to these for time's sake, but if you wanna write down 2 Samuel 24, 25, and 2 Samuel 6.14, these are instances where David actually, in one case, wore a priestly ephod, which was a garment that priests wore, and where he actually conducted sacrifices as a priest would. And these were, this was a foreshadowing of Christ, because when Christ comes, he is the perfect example of the priestly king. And so David, being a man after God's own heart, is able to start to, in his imperfection, is able to start to foreshadow who Christ is in his completeness to us, not just king, not just priest, not just prophet, but God, but Jesus is all of those things. And we see David pointing us toward that. We actually see the point a little bit more clearly when you recognize the opposite. And um, I'm gonna start telling you a little bit about King Uzziah. Again, we're gonna write this one down, but not turn to it. In 2 Chronicles 26, 16, we're reading about King Uzziah and it references when he was strong, he grew proud. So when King Uzziah was strong, he grew proud. And he actually set out to perform the duties of a priest as, as he was king, but he did it out of his pride and out of his strength, not out of a posture of humility and wanting to serve others in those offices. And as a result, it did not please the Lord. And so in Isaiah 6.1, we actually see this when Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah goes on to give us a prophecy about the coming of Christ. He goes on to talk about Jesus when Jesus comes, is coming. And it's interesting to me that he actually references that King Uzziah, he's dead. Like he, he died. He may have thought he could do these things and he may have been strong and proud, but he's not king anymore. And he points us to a king who will reign on his throne forever. So, um, that's all the kings we're going to touch on in the Old Testament right now, because again, they are pointing us and foreshadowing us to Christ. And while we've been spending time in the Old Testament together, I want to spend a little bit more time in the New Testament as we're preparing uh, as Christ the King Sunday, and we're preparing to enter into the Advent season. Uh, but I want to show you this timeline of kings, because um, this is just a rough out of, of kings and prophets in kind of parallel of when they served and when they lived. And you'll notice there's an overwhelming color of red right? Because what happens when we as humans get power is not a good thing, right? It corrupts us, right? Uh, it's not a good thing. And so I don't expect you to be able to read all of that. It's very small. Um, but 
This is just an example of, if you were to look at some of the other kings, we don't see a lot of good, a lot of good there. So um, these kings, uh, they finish out, you can see we end in Assyrian captivity, we end in Babylonian captivity with Judah and the rest of Israel. And so eventually Jesus comes on the scene. And as we know, Jesus uh, becomes king, but it's important that we understand what kind of king he was. So we're going to look at a couple of passages that talk about that. So uh, you'll remember the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, hopefully, if you've been around at all. It's one of the famous stories where he takes five loaves, two fishes, and then he's able to perform a miracle and feed 5,000 people. So uh, just after that, in John 6, 14 and 15, this is what we read. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world, Jesus Knowing that they intended to come and take, make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so what's happening here, in a similar way that we saw in the Old Testament, the Israelites wanted a king for the wrong reasons. These people wanted Jesus to be king because they, he had filled their bellies, because he had performed a miracle, and they were like, man, we want more of that. We want more of those miracles, we want more of those things that you're doing for us. And so we want to make you king. And Jesus is like, that's not the kind of king that I'm intended to be. So that's the first point we see. Um, and then he does another miracle later on. And we're going to stay in John. Later on in John, he does another miracle. He actually raises Lazarus from the dead. So imagine if you're in the crowd, you're following Jesus around. You're already pretty excited about what this guy's doing. You're about to force him to try to be your king in, uh, in an earlier passage in John, in John 6 that we just looked at. And now he raises a person from the dead. He literally tells a dead man to get up out of the grave who's been there for three days and walk out. So you'd be pretty excited if you were in the crowd at this point, right? And so we see a little bit of that excitement in John 12, 12 and 13. So just after that happened, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They are ready to crown him king. They're expecting him to come in and do a military takeover of the people that they're uh, under the oppression of. That's their expectation at this point. They are, they are literally like waving their king in with these palm branches and they're excited that he's coming. But as we know, that's not actually what Jesus did. The next few days, he, he did things like eat supper with his, with his 12 closest friends. And he went to a garden to pray. And so you can imagine, I mean, as a matter of fact, um, we don't know for sure this is what happened, but what I imagine, so again, I want to be clear, this is not written down in scripture this way, but I imagine Judas himself was getting pretty impatient with this process. And so Judas actually is one of the 12 closest friends of Jesus who's been following him, and he betrays Jesus, hands him over to the authorities, I believe not to be killed. I believe he was trying to force Jesus' hand and say, okay, it's time. Like, if, if you get taken into captivity, you're going to have no choice but to do what you came to do, which is to overthrow these oppressors. And of course, as you know, that's not what Jesus did, because he wasn't a military ruler. He wasn't there to defeat the Romans. He wasn't there to take over things. He actually has a different kind of kingdom in mind. And so to look at that in Matthew 4 is when Jesus actually ushers in his kingdom. It's when he says the kingdom has come. And in Matthew 5, 
Jesus actually tells us the kind of kingdom that it is. He gives us the values of his kingdom. And so these are the values of Jesus' kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the values of the kingdom that Christ is ushering in. So there's two things I'd love for us to take heart tonight as we're closing. I don't know about you guys, but I don't always want Jesus to be the kind of king that he actually came to be. I want him to be the kind of king and, and, and live in a kind of kingdom that I want. I'll give you an example. On Enneagram 3, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Enneagram. It's like this latest kind of popular test thing, so I run out and take them. Um, if you're not familiar, what it means is I'm an achiever. I like to accomplish things. And not only that, but I like to look good. So the kind of king I want Jesus to be, I'll be really vulnerable and honest with you. I kind of want Jesus to make me look awesome. I want his purpose on earth as king over my life to make me accomplish good things, do great things, and to look good in other people's eyes. I want other people to go, man, look at Paul. Look at what he's done. Look at how great he is. Look at what a perfect family he has. Look at, you know, how great balance in his life is or whatever else you want to look at. Um, But you know what? That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. He wants people that are humble of heart. He wants people that use whatever gifts they have and power to serve others and to lift others up. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And so tonight, what I'd love us to do is say, am I going to try to make Jesus into the kind of king that I want him to be? Or do I submit myself to the kind of king that he really is? Take a moment, let's just pause and reflect in the quietness of where you sit and think about these two questions. What area of my life, where am I trying to force Jesus to be the kind of king that I want him to be? And how can, that kind, how can, I, how can the kind of king that Jesus really is transform that area of my life if I submit to him? So reflect on that for a couple of minutes, then I'll come back and close this. mission trip not that long ago to a kingdom. There's still kingdoms uh, on the earth, even though we don't live in one. Um, Brunei, uh, Bahrain, Swaziland, different kingdoms that exist. Uh, and it's different. It's really different there. Uh, we, we, maybe if Donald Trump speaks, um, we make jokes about it, or maybe we don't even tune in and watch uh, if he speaks on TV. 
but it's really different living in a kingdom. When they were visiting, my friend was visiting these, this village, there were like posters and pictures of the king everywhere. And one day, everybody was like gone out of the village and they found them all in the square. Like every single person was in this square and they were watching a projector that had been set up. And there was this guy like standing there just like at a, at a lectern, just like reading, like with his eyes down, like boring stuff that we would never listen to. But everybody was like, like listening with just like this, this incredible attention given to this person who was speaking. And so my friend said, who is that? Who's on the screen that everybody's so interested? And he said, that's the king. That's the king. And he's reading the new constitution. And then all of a sudden, everybody erupted like in celebration. And then like for the next two, three days, like this giant celebration just was going on. And what had happened was the king had told that group of people that had previously been excluded, that they were now officially part of the kingdom, that they were included and they were brought in. That's the best news I have for you tonight. That God's kingdom that we're talking about, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in, it's not something you have to wait for that's like coming later. It's something that's available right now. And, and you're in the kingdom. If you've asked Christ, you've accepted what he did on the cross for you, you're in the kingdom. You're in. That's the great news. And that's why we get to worship tonight is that we've been included in the kingdom. And so let's worship him for including us in the kingdom and for what he did. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.